What's up, brother? Not too much. We're just waiting on Davey now, and we'll get after it. How you been? I'm good. You? Oh, you know, not too bad. Just fucking enjoying my weekend. Got a new tattoo, another new tattoo, I guess. Just been going hard on the whole getting inked up thing, you know, fucking living life, you know. Not looking forward to winter because fucking it's going to suck up there in the tower. What have you been up to? Nothing much. Yeah, this bad. Just working. You know how it goes. How am I doing? She's good. That's good. That's good. Glad to hear it, man. Glad to hear it. Fucking, is it get, it's starting to get cold out. Yeah, it is. It's starting to re- get really cold out. Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. Are you just fine. Can you hear me? All right. Yeah. I just I got new headphones, so I'm just making sure. Yeah. No. Yeah. I definitely feel you. Um, I tried to you know fuck with my settings a little bit to make like the echo you know kind of a little better, but also none of us are sitting in you know soundproof rooms, so we can only. We're going to do so good at that, but they, they're turning out all right. Uh, I've been listening back on them. Uh, we missed you last week, man. Did the fucking Patriots win? Uh, yeah, they did last week. Oh, yeah. Uh, who they got right now? They got Cam Newton now instead of uh, Tom Brady. Yeah, but uh, I'm loving Cam. He's great, but unfortunately, he just tested positive for corona, so. <laughs> yeah, him and Donald Trump both, man. Fucking shit going around again. Yep. They canceled well, today's And when fucking when da- whenever David clicks over, it'll all be good. What's going on, everybody? Welcome yet again to the Wise Guys Hideaway. I'm your host, Ian Barr. As always, is with me, Boston Rob, Rob below. And we're waiting on uh, good old uh, Davey from good old Davey Brexfire from England. But uh, we're gonna dive, we're gonna dive into it here before he pops on. Once he pops on, we'll uh, catch him all up. Today, we're gonna be talking about. Um, one of one of my favorite, uh, I don't. I guess I'll call him a mob crew. I shouldn't really call him a mob crew because it's not like they were made guys. You know, they're a bunch of Irish kids from uh, Hell's Kitchen. And uh, if you don't know where Hell's Kitchen's at, Hell's Kitchen is uh, it doesn't exist anymore. Actually. It's uh, it used to be a neighborhood in uh, Manhattan, and uh, it was heavily heavily Irish. Uh, so Irish, in fact, that uh, the mob, for the most part, let the Irish just sort of have it. They didn't really. They didn't really make too much fuss about, you know, the Irish sort of having control of Hell's Kitchen. Uh, before we get started today, I'm going to have to give a big shout out to uh, author TJ English, uh, who's author of The Westies Inside the Irish Mob, as well as Patty Wax, The Untold Story of the Irish American Gangster. Uh, I mean, most pretty much everything I'm, I'm delivering to you is coming, coming out of his work. So, I mean, a, a real big shout out to him. Uh, also, a big, uh, big shout out to our thing, Clothing Apparel, and, uh, you know, the mob scene. Uh, my uh, brother's mobile's mechanic in uh, Detroit. Uh, I'll get you the number by the end. Yo. Shout out to those guys. Rob, you got anybody you want to give a shout out to? Yeah, let me give a shout out to uh, our team at Omerta Social Club, my team at Prison Tales Network, NCS, National Crime Syndicate, NCS's Classic Gangster Society, and the Mob King and Cerro DiPaggio. Hell yeah. What's up, Dave? Yeah, I, I, for some reason, the, uh, it didn't come through anyway. I'm in now. <laughs> huh. Well, there we go. Yeah, How yeah. you doing, brother? I'm good, brother. How are you, Rob? I'm great, man. Good, good. good. I just caught the right time. Yeah, yeah, you did good. I just, uh, me and Rob bullshitted about Corona and American football and all that shit for a minute. And then I was like, well, when he pops in, he pops in. So I, I gave the whole intro and explained uh, who and, you know, kind of what we're going to be talking about. 
And then uh, Rob did his shout outs and I, I gave my couple plugs. You got anything you want to uh, get on the table there, Dave? Uh, yeah, um, I, I did hear Rob do National Crime Syndicate and obviously Mob King, C.O. DiPaggio. Um, just to the guys over at uh, Bad Guy Podcast, obviously Brett Giuliano, if you haven't done Brett, and uh, Gangsters, uh, Gangster Profiles. Hell yeah, I uh, almost forgot, uh, but definitely definitely not a forgotten fella. Uh, big shout out to the original Gangster Podcast, the proprietor, Scott M. Bernstein. You know, big, uh, big shout out to him. Big shout out to Gunnar Lindblom and just all the guys and, you know, all the guys from our thing. Our thing. Guys, you yeah. know, we know too many people. Doing, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, it's talking like a 20-minute bit of a uh, <laughs> fucking shot. But nonetheless, we're going to get on it. I was just explaining that uh, we're going to be discussing the Westies today and how they're one of my favorite. Uh, little renegade mob crews. They're, they're one of the more, most murderous groups of, uh, you know, two-bit criminals, I guess I call them, that, I, that I've ever researched. The only reason I call them two-bit criminals is not that they didn't make large money-making deals and, and, and big stores. It was just they, they were all so fucking strung out and wild and reckless that they never really got to get ahead by any of these scores. So uh, what, I'm just going to lead it in and sort of give a uh, oversight of, of more or less the Westies. The Westies uh, founder uh, is uh, an individual by the name of Jimmy Coonan, and uh, he's actually he's actually still alive. He's serving the rest of his natural born days in a federal penitentiary for his litany of crimes he committed between the 60s and the 80s. Um, but the I mean the the who and the what here is a bunch of fucking Irish kids. The where is Hell's Kitchen, Manhattan. Um, the, the ironic part is that they never actually had more than 20 members at a time, but with a, with anywhere from, you know, eight to 12 to 20 members, 20 members being at their peak, and it didn't last very long because, I mean, these, these guys are killing each other and don't in prison nothing, right? But uh, during the stretch, they committed uh, all the following crimes, racketeering, bookmaking, assault, extortion, contract killings for the Gambino family, in, in particular, Roy DeMeo. Um, burglary, kidnapping, mail fraud, bid rigging, gambling, numbers, drugs, counterfeit, I mean, you name it, guys. And they're estimated from 1968 to 1986 when they loosely form in 1968 when they start rounding up, you know, some guys to when they're all getting put away for the rest of their fucking lives in 1986. They're believed to have committed anywhere between 60 to 100 murders. And I'd ride right in the middle and say, yeah, probably about 80. Uh, that, that's how I'm going to lead us in, guys. You guys got, yeah. got anything you want to um, Didn't, didn't, uh, Giuliani at the time, Mayor Giuliani called them the most savage organization in the long history of New York street gangs. Yeah, actually, he did because of their it was their penchant for violence and like how, how quick they were to do it, as well as the overkill mentality that all these boys seem to have. It was, uh, I mean, it, it, I mean, to really dive into them, you, I mean, you gotta just go back to like how the hell kitchen was. I mean, from the 1950s to like the early 60s. Uh, a mobster that I'm sure all of us know, Huey Mulligan. He was the one who was more or less in control of Hell's Kitchen. He ran it from Queens, though. He didn't live there. He, I mean, he, was, he wasn't going to live with the crash. He was, you know, was going to collect from afar. But that all changes in the early 60s when Mickey Lane uh, popped on the scene. And, um, I mean... I mean, there's a ton that can be said about Mickey Spillane, both uh, good and bad, but uh, I mean, mainly good. I don't know if either of you, uh, what your research on Mickey Spillane showed, but didn't they, everything I've ever read about Didn't they call him the gentleman gangster? Absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly where I was getting, is that, I mean, he's still a gangster, and gangsters got to do what gangsters got to do. But yeah, I mean, you are right, David, for, uh, and especially for an Irish crime boss, because I mean, I, I mean, I'm sure Rob knows this just from the litany of Irish crime bosses that have ran Boston. 
they seem to be a lot more cutthroat and ruthless than the Italians. I, that's just my personal opinion. Rob, what do you think about that? Think about what? Yep. what it, yeah, I'm here. Think about what? How uh, I was just explaining how uh, Mickey Spillane, how he was, uh, uh, David explained that he was like a gen- the gentleman gangster, sort of what they dubbed him, and how Kitchen, because he was uh, more of a respectable upstand. I'd say almost worked more like a, a Sicilian mob boss than an Irish mob boss, because I, I was saying, like, I mean, just my insight was every time I research, you know, Irish crews, Irish crime bosses, Irish, they, they always seem to have such a more, such a blood rush almost. And just a much more of a penchant for violence than the Italian crime bosses. Not saying both, you know, both organizations don't, you know, kill immense amounts of people, but with the Irish mob, it seems like you're never talking about more than 20 or 30 guys, and they still got, you know, 200, 300 bodies amongst the crew. Whereas you're talking about an entire mob family, and like, you know, they still got similar numbers and closer to the thousands, probably. But I don't know. What What do you think? Do you, Do you think that the Irish mob was uh? quicker or I guess more violent, more pension for violent than uh, the Italian? Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, the Irish mob guys, they didn't really, you know, think it through too much like the Italian mob did and like uh, Spillane would would have done. Spillane, uh, he operated more like a Italian mobster as far as, um, yeah. you know, being, being respectful, um, you know, a respected man. I mean, Coonan was just a fucking nut, so... Yeah, Coonan was definitely a nut. Uh, yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong, Spillane, uh, Spillane kept some hard hitters underneath him, but, uh, I mean, as David said, he was kind of more, I mean, gentleman would be the right word, because any, anything I've ever seen on him, you know, he was the type that, you know, a little old lady's heat going out middle winter, he's going to foot the bill, and no, he's not going to charge her vigorous. You know, he's going to wear a nice, respectable you know, Wall Street suit, whereas a lot of the guys in the West, he's, uh, if they even were wearing suits, because they were also, like I said, low rent is what I... But didn't I mean, didn't Coonan hate him um, because of something that took place a number of years ago? Something over his um, there was a machine gun fire or something from one of the tops of the building when something was going on, and um, yes. Mickey Spillane that he kidnapped his father or something, didn't he? Yeah, he kidnapped uh, Jimmy Coonan's father. So Coonan always had uh, had it out for him for that. Um, I believe. Coonan was 18 at the time when his father was kidnapped by uh, by Spillane and uh, pistol whipped and all that. Smacked around and extorted. And and everybody's got to remember before we just carry on from that that Mickey's, or not Spillane, Jimmy Coonan's father was just a simple accountant. He he was, you know, he was on the up and up kind of guy. But yeah, you're absolutely right, Rob. Uh, I don't know if his father being kidnapped turned him into a criminal. But it goddamn sure turned him into the criminal that he became, that that pension for violence. He was really, he was really, uh, I mean, he fucking hated him. He hated Mickey Spillane. Well, he was scared he of him, wasn't he? What you were talking about. Uh, Mickey Spillane was scared of, 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 of like, <laughs> it was like, hold on a minute, what's going on here? He, he, he didn't underestimate him from that age. Oh, no, no, no. Because, like, you when you were talking about the machine gun fire, what it was was once Coonan's father was returned, Coonan kept making threatening phone calls to Spillane, and Spillane uh, took around about a second time, smacked Coonan's dad up, you know, a second time, like, tell your, you know, tell your smart mouth son to fucking mind his T's and Q's. Well, Coonan wasn't about that. He, he had 
happened to uh, score a, uh, I believe it was a Mac 11 submachine gun or something. It, I mean, it, it was, once again, I'm, I'm going to keep saying low rent a lot through this episode because, like, as much as these guys fascinate me, they, they're just that. They're a low rent killers, strung out, drug addicts. Gang- they're gangsters. They're fucking gangsters. Don't get me wrong. But they pretty much just all have mental disorders. Like, <laughs> like for real, like there, there was no real organization. The, even the Ruby Stein hit that we'll get to in a little bit, that was done half fucking mm. They, they were just like, you know, like, but yeah, Coonan shoots up Spillane's house, and sort of just starts trying to recruit an army, you know, towards the the late '60s and early '70s. And here in the early '70s, like I'm sure we all know about this one, uh, the sort of the birth of the kind of mapping out of the Jacob K. Javits Convention Center. Yeah. Uh, big impact, what is what is a huge multi fucking. Well, that's why I know a bit about the Westy side of things in respect to that because obviously it went through um, Andy Salerno in the end, didn't it? Andy Salerno took and that because that really did impress me that um, with Coonan that he was able to deal with the Gambino family and also with the Genovese family. Uh, in such, I mean, like you say, that the, there were no more than twenty of them, and yet um, they were still able to do business and do business in a good way with with the Italians. Once, obviously, Spillane was out of the picture. Yeah, that was Spillane's oh, yeah. downfall. Um, not letting the Italians in on uh, in on the Javits and uh, construction rackets and all that. Um, yeah, he buried himself. I mean, he, he, he had, um, didn't he have the, the, the square, Madison Square Garden as well at that time, Spillane, that he kept to himself? I'm not sure. He had um, a lot of stuff that he was keeping keeping to himself. Mm-hmm. And he gave bits and pieces of Madison Square Garden, but he, yeah, he, he took about 50% right. from everything I, that I've researched. He would have been so much more up. powerful, and uh, his tenure as boss would have went on for much longer if he had worked with the Italians and uh, – and let them in on it. Well, yeah, because didn't didn't Coonan get a? Uh, uh, I mean, I, I personally, looking at the research that I've done, I, I felt that Coonan would have probably taken over a lot sooner. Had didn't he get a ten year sentence or something in the late sixties? Um, yeah, he caught a mur- he caught a murder kidnapping beef, and um, just due to Hell's Kitchen and the Irish way of you know, I didn't see a fucking thing. I didn't hear mm. a fucking thing. I'm not saying a fucking thing. He ended up getting it dropped down to a class C manslaughter. And then, I mean, that's, that's where, like, Coonan rides in at that, like, potential actual psychopath level was he was always able to, it seemed, despite his rough demeanor and how ruthless and cutthroat he was, he was always able to sort of get get along with uh, law mm-hmm. enforcement, whereas, like, his right-hand man who, uh, that he recruited, Mickey Featherstone, didn't have that same kind of charm. And like, Mickey Featherstone was a loose fucking king. Well, he, he got pulled in for the Spillane murder, didn't he? Featherstone? Oh, no. Uh, uh, Featherstone wasn't part of the Spillane murder. Spillane murder, actually, I I do believe Jimmy Coonan was present, but it was uh, Roy DeMeo. Yeah, he, he, yeah. But I, I thought Mickey, Stone, I actually thought Mickey Featherstone stood trial for that. Uh, stood, yeah, stood trial for that murder as well. Did he not? Oh. He did. He did. Found would not guilty ah. on that one. Mickey Splane was being convicted of a murder he didn't commit. Another Westie member did, but the individual who put the, his disguise on, the disguise had a blonde wig and it sort of just stuck out to look like Mickey Featherstone. Right. Uh, Featherstone was uh, sort of Coonan's like, I don't really know what he was, kind of his lackey. Like Coonan, you know, I mean, 
you got to think, Mickey Spillane, he wasn't no slouch. And even when shit got hot and heavy because he's got the Genovese and fat Tony breathing down his neck one way, and the Colombo family actually breathing down, you know, the side, like, you know, the other side of his neck, uh, because uh, another big player in the convention center was uh, a capo in the Colombo family by the name of Nicholas Jigs uh, Ferlano. And um, he sort of approached Blaine too and sort of tried to get him, like, to, you know, reason with that Tony, reason with the Columbos. Like, I mean, doing, doing, I mean, essentially everything you can in that life to try to, to try to help a guy that you only so have care about. But Blaine thought he was set because his lieutenants, I mean, Tom Devine, Eddie the Butcher Comiskey, who was a, a ruthless, I can't stress enough, ruthless motherfucker. He's the one who taught uh, Jimmy Coonan how to dismember bodies, actually. Wow. And then Tom the Greek, uh, Patos, and uh, I mean, all three of them were killed by another Irish renegade sociopath. I mean, we all know him. I, I mean, I personally fucking have a soft spot for him, Joseph Mad Dog. Mm. He, uh, he those hits on behalf of uh, Serlano, Dave. He, he was, uh, that's another one that fascinates me, kind of, is uh, go off on a Mad Dog tangent here for a second, is how direct he got to deal with high ranking you know, lieutenants and capos and fucking uh, bosses in the mob to, to be a contract killer. Because he, I mean, he was essentially a, a nobody too, just a run-of-the-mill hitter, but he was so good at what he did that uh, Fat Tony would actually meet mm. with Mad Dog. But, I mean, if the research I found serves me correct, I don't know. You know more about the Genovese. Maybe. If I remember correctly, I, I believe it was Kaminsky. He was actually, when he got killed in the bar uh, by Mad Dog Sullivan, I believe, if unless I have the wrong person, he was sitting there and he was talking to people and he was actually telling them how nobody could kill him, you know, how he's untouchable, no one would kill him, and all of a sudden, literally seconds later, a bullet catches him in the back <laughs> of the head. Didn't he switch sides, Rob? Yeah, I've heard. Uh, yeah, he he was actually with Coonan by then. That was a mistake in him. I mean, Coonan, what are you going to do? Coonan's going to ride it out. But the the one thing that really bonded uh, Eddie Comiskey and made him pledge his loyalty to Coonan was one of Eddie Comiskey's best friends had been uh, killed by uh, Pat Patrick Patty Dugan. And uh, Coonan and Comiskey were sort of, Comiskey was best friends with the individual. I can't find his name in my notes right now. I got to start writing better, guys. I need to get better pens than this. But nonetheless, Coonan uh, and Comiskey, they linked up. And this is one of the most brazen fucking hits I've ever heard about. They, they tracked down Dugan. They, they take him to a, you know, a house kitchen apartment, abandoned, whatever. They gun him down, they whack him up, they chop him up, they take his fucking head and they put it in a bowling ball bag. And they walk to every bar in Hell's Kitchen. And they go in and they sit down at the bar and they order a drink and they put a bag on the table. They'll open the bag, they pull out it, they pull out Patty Dugan's head and they say, you know, this is Patty Dugan. You know, where the Westies don't fuck with. I don't know if they specifically said where the Westies. I don't think they ever dubbed themselves that. I think that's just the name they were given. But nonetheless, you know. I'm I'm Jimmy Coonan. I'm you know I'm Comiskey. This is Patty Dugan. You don't fuck with us. That's, that's yeah. It was a press that called in the Westies, wasn't it? They were the um, West uh, West Side, didn't they? They called themselves the West Side Gang amongst themselves. Yeah, yeah, pretty, yeah, pretty much. They never referred to them. To, uh, Bill Beatty, who was a pretty high uh, ranking member in the crew, uh, said that they always like kind of denounced the Westie side of it when people would be like. Oh, you're a West Side guy? No, I ain't no West Side, you know what I mean? But they did call themselves the West Side Gang. And they just also always kind of looked at themselves as just neighborhood, you know, hoodlums. I mean, looking out for each other. I mean, so, I mean, eventually, 
Kunin builds up a big enough army, even losing to Misty. I mean, Putin recruits uh, Mickey Featherstone, who, like I said, who's a deranged Vietnam vet, and not because he's seen any action like he was hoping and praying for, but because during a drinking vendor one night, at, uh, at, you know, where, where he was stationed, uh, a couple of other soldiers played a rather mean prank on him and because uh, he was uncircumcised. As <laughs> a prank. <laughs> Yeah. Cut his foreskin off as a prank. Okay. You got to remember, the Mickey Feathers, you look him up, like, he, he, was a, mm. he was a small guy. Like, I'm built, but, like, he was even, like, kind of... Even smaller when Nathan is with him. It was a loose cannon, man. When he came back, what they had done to him in the military and the fact that he didn't see action and that they had, you know, uh, humiliated him like that. There was a, an a, a investigator, I mean, a FBI agent, when Featherstone did decide to flip and he was telling a story, that she said, A, he had an impeccable memory. He could remember who, what, when, where, how, who was wearing what, what the room smelled like, things like that. And he also always constantly brought up the fact that anything in a uniform... And he had a clean helmet. <laughs> yeah. You're really stuck on that certain bit, eh, But one of the Featherstone's claims to fame is that the way Coonan had, you know, really linked up is them. the Featherstone's in a bar and they're playing and playing pool with a buddy and a, and a couple of tough guys come in. They say, they say some shit and uh, Featherstone, just enraged, runs out, uh, begins just running down the street frantically. I don't really know who or where he was running or, you know, going to, but he manages to bump into Coonan outside, you know, like a five and nine store, where, I mean, whatever, wherever the fuck you're into the lounge with. And knowing that Coonan was a, a gun-carrying guy and, you know, kind of was... But explain, he asked me to get a pistol. Well, I mean, fellow, fellow Irish, you know, runs up on you, seems like he's frantic, seems like he's, I mean, done heard the story about the circumcision. So you're like, I mean, yeah, you know, here you go, Mickey, no problem. And dude goes back to the bar, walks right in, goes, fuck you, shoots the guy three times, leaves him on the pool table, sits down at the bar. Like, what are they going to do, call the cops? Like, I mean, there, there was something seriously unhinged with Mickey Featherstone, but he was like, laughing. I mean, then you had William Billy Beatty, you had Danny Grillo, yeah, I mean, you had Richie Ryan, uh, Eddie the Butcher Kaminsky until he met his swift uh, end at Mad Dog. Hand. I mean, James McElroy, uh, Richard Mugsy Ritter, uh, Brian Bentley. I mean, all all these guys. I mean, I don't I don't know what it takes to be a serial killer. I think you, I mean, three or four, really, when it's just kind of, you know hyenas and like almost for no reason at all. These guys would put all every single person that has named on that list would shut you down without a, mm. a second thought. It, it didn't bother me, you know. So I mean, just that alone in itself is, I mean, is kind of crazy. I can't really, other than maybe the the Mayo crew and like Murder Inc. Um, you know, a, a handful of other crews. I can't really think of any mob crews that were every. John got to use them as his murder squad, didn't he? Uh, yeah, yeah, he used them to kill. I believe it. that one was. Uh, hold on, I I got that one wrote down somewhere because I found that one uh interesting. They he, uh they ended up working for Joe Watts and they killed a Teamster Union official. Actually, I think that might have been the the one that got Featherstone sent up sent up state. I mean, like I said, these guys spent so much time in and out of prison, or uh, they lived so you know. Fast and fast and hard and dead. That like I mean, but before they did all that, they they found themselves a real score in the early seventies with uh, 
a Jewish gangster by the name of Charles Ruby Stein. Ruby Stein. You both know about particular uh, endeavor. So if you guys would like to bounce it back and forth to take us through it, go right ahead and I'll fill in the blank. Because, I mean, I, I know you boys know about this. Hit, oh, yeah. So. Stein was, uh, um, you know, he was a legend in, uh, in the mob. And he was the biggest um, loan shark on the East Coast, I believe. Yeah, he was a loan shark, loan shark. Like he he lent money mm. to the guys who yeah, lent that, money, you know. And that's how Coonan first got got involved. He started working for uh, Ruby Stein. I want to say sometime in the uh, in the nineteen seventies. You know, he worked as his bodyguard, and uh, Stein schooled him and and all that. Um, and then we know what happens next. Stein, you know, once Coonan. Coonan, you know, gets the knowledge and all that. He decides to take Ruby Stein out. It's it's kind of um, oh, it's yeah, kind I of like similar that. with um, uh, in a way with uh, where was I going with this? <laughs> um, with uh, Arnold Rosting <laughs> and Lucky Luciano and and early like the early days. Um, obviously, instead of uh, yeah, uh, Rosting, you've got Ruby Stein. Same sort of situation, I think. Oh, yeah, still a Jew. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. That was a joke. Uh, no, but no, Ruby Stein was a, was a genius. I mean, he actually, he probably ranked up right there with like an Arnold Rothstein or R. Meyer Lansky as far as intelligence-wise, to be honest with you. He sifted with some of the best. Fat Tony Solano fucking loved Ruby Stein. Okay, I guess love probably don't stretch of a word, but like he definitely, definitely befriended him and definitely fucked with him. Like, you know, I mean, we all know Fat Tony and how little patience he had and how, how ruthless and you know, vicious he could be even to some of the people he claimed to have cared about the most, but he never seemed to have a problem with Stein, like I said, as well as uh, uh, the Colombo family. Uh, they, they had dealings with Stein. Um, a few members in the Gambinos, I mean, he was he was all over the place. He was he mm-hmm. loaning money out all over the place. So for anybody that doesn't quite understand how a loan shark works, uh, back in that day, you know, because we don't have cell phones or nothing like that, a gentleman would walk around lending out money at luxurious rates. I mean, like... We had over a million dollars out, didn't we? In the sixty, in the sixty, that was a million dollars. Oh yeah, probably several million. Yeah, easily. Yeah, and like, I said, yeah, I would. Yeah, I think. Uh, I think the highest amount of money that was owed to him in that black book was a cool half a million. Do you think he was killed because of that? Ian, like a little composite. Rob, do you think he was killed? I believe black book. black book. I believe he was killed uh, because of his black book, but um. I think even Coonan owed, owed him money. And that's that's another reason yeah, why uh, Coonan, you know, took him out. I, it was for his black book, and it was because uh, he owed him some money. Yeah, I mean, he uh, they all owed him money. I mean, that's the other thing about the West is them fucking guys were some partiers, man. They're not one of them that wasn't fucking riding that white pony of nose candy or drinking themselves. To I mean, I, Irish people just, you know, they're just, they're going to bomb and deplete themselves the fuck out. I mean, other than like Whitey Bulger and maybe a handful of Mickey Spillane, there's been a handful that were, I mean, I'm not going to call Whitey Bulger uh, respectable, but he, uh, he definitely didn't do drugs. He didn't drink. He, he had very few vices other than apparently loving to fucking kill people. You know, they, they kept a real tight grip, grip on it, but a lot, a lot of Irish crews like the Westies or when I think of, uh, you know, like the loosely put together members of the Winter Hill gang, I mean, for some reason, when it comes to the Irish, they all fucking drink way too much. I mean, the Italians all drink, you know, pretty much all day long, too. Don't get it twisted. Everybody's sitting in the sofa club having a spritzer, but the Irish boys are just <laughs> like, and you want to shot 
eight, you know, in broad daylight and fucking you just casually stroll away about it, keeping the gun you just shot him with on you and shit. Like Rob said, they didn't set up hit like the Italians to where, you know, four men are involved, the guy walks the guy in the room, bat, you wrap him in the, you know, you put him in the tarp, you put him in the rug, whatever, you get rid of the gun, you get, no, fucking Irish guy's gonna shoot you on the fucking park bench, it's gonna be noon, there's gonna be 40 witnesses, he's gonna be half in the bag, and he's gonna walk up with a half shitty disguise, one of them goofy fucking dollar store, like, clown fucking glasses on with a stupid nose and mustache, he's gonna fire 14 times, every bullet in his gun, and and, and it was, uh, it wasn't it during, was it Castellano that Jimmy Coonan had a meeting with and the boys were waiting if they weren't out in a certain amount of time that they were coming and grenades to yep, just yeah. take out everybody? Yeah, yeah. Bill Beatty uh, sort of does a, a bit of a recollection on that when he's giving his testimony and he's talking in one documentary and it's kind of funny because he's like, but to be honest with you, I don't know if we would have ever went and said, you know, done anything. Anyway, we were all at the 596, fucking drinking, doing blow. He's like, I don't even know if we'd have heard the phone ring. You know, like, you know, like, they, they were they were only, because Mickey Featherstone and Jimmy Coogan get called to a meeting. Because then, well, I'm gonna, let, let's take these guys through the Stein hit. We all know it, but we just kind of breezed over it. So on May 5th, 1977, it's a, it's a stormy-ish night. You know, I'll set, I'm going to set the scene for y'all. And uh, Jimmy Coons got Ruby Stein coming to his club, the 596 Club. I don't know if it was Coons Club yet, but he would, if not right after the Stein hit, purchase it. If not, he purchased it before. I, I can't quite remember. Nonetheless, a nice little lounge that they all you know, hang out with, which is ironically enough today, uh, a gay bar. Uh, so, I mean, that's kind of, it's kind of ironic that, you know, this big tough gangs are hanging out. Turn, Genevieve's old you know, turn, turn the Genevieve's owned enough gay bars um, for it not to be so much of a shock, to be honest. The Genovese family, yeah, they own quite a few gay bars. They, 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 um, even back in sort of not back in the day, though, but back in the day, um, the Genovese family were very much into the club yeah, well, life, right? I mean, yeah, it was good money. <laughs> no one else wanted to touch it, so the business yeah. was there, the money was there, so it was like it was kind of if you like, um, fresh business. So and it, it was, I mean, again, it, it, the Genovese were also quite big in the music industry. So, I mean, they they were very much um, involved in a lot of industries that other families weren't so much involved with. Yeah, that's very true. I, I always actually kind of wondered because, like, like I said, you know, it's May 5th, 1977, and uh, Ruby Stein goes to the 596. He's lured in there by Jimmy Cooney, and he enters the 596. And once he walks in, he's walked in here a thousand times. And I mean, a guy with that kind of wealth and power and, you know, that much love from those, all those powerful people around him, he, he probably really didn't suspect a couple of Irish mutts who could barely afford a leather fucking jacket to be what took him out. Of, yeah, to I don't think Stein was, you know, worried at all about going to that meeting. I don't think he, he even had the slightest clue that they were going to take him out. I don't. I don't either. I thought. I think Ruby Stein was another one of those ones who, for some unbeknown reason, thought because he wasn't a real uh, violent guy. Like it's not like he had. He was a bad man. When he was a money man. You know, different people he had killed. He had the money. Yeah, he, was just, he was a fucking. Cat, but yeah, exactly. He was a bank. Man. wasn't he? He was full knocks. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, you know, with that much money being on you, could buy. That. I do believe in, even at one point, like that Tony Serlano would would use him for you know different 
Oh, he's very much in with Salerno, um, as he was um, uh, uh, Jigs, um, Forlano from the Colombo family. Yeah, yeah, Jigs. Yep, yep, yeah. But I do believe he actually even, like, Tony Salerno would use him for, like, personal loans, I guess. Not personal for, like, himself, but personal to where, like, hey, like, I got this guy, he runs on this and that. Like, you know, I, I, I got a soft spot for him. You know, Fat Tony was getting money from everywhere. <laughs> Oh yeah! Oh yeah! Oh yeah! I bet you know that's what I mean. Like fat, like fat Tony knew what he was doing. He managed to. I love fat Tony. I love fat Tony. Fat Tony, do you have anything to say for yourself? (laughs) Yeah, go fuck yourself. Thank you. You're welcome. That's one of the best. That's one of the best fucking things I've ever seen. And like, you know, like just that you're welcome, and he genuinely does mean it. Like even though he just told the guy to go fuck himself, you know, like, but. Nonetheless, so Stein walks into the 596. Uh, Billy Beatty slams the door, locks it. Uh, Mickey Featherstone, boom, draws the shutters. And Danny, Danny Grillo steps out from behind the bar, dropping two in uh, Ruby Stein's head and drops him to the floor. After, after that, Danny Grillo handed the gun around to all, uh, I believe it was eight members there total. And each member put a bullet into Ruby Stein before they began the uh, dismemberment process. Uh, which was also a fun little uh, learning experience for Featherstone, because despite the fact that Featherstone had no problem getting up on a motherfucker and putting 44 bullets through the body, making it look like SpongeBob, he didn't have the stomach for dismemberment. He really wasn't uh, keen on it. And uh, Coonan and, and a few of the other guys did. I mean, you know, Danny Grillo, uh, James McElroy, I mean, they, they all had the stomach. Bill Beatty uh, recalled at one point they severed off Ruby Stein's head and uh, Jane, uh, James McElroy, I believe it was, picked it up and said, Jesus Christ, you believe how fucking heavy a head is right here? And yeah. they passed the severed head around. And so they clean up, they clean the body up, and uh, they dump it, dump it in the Hudson. And they go back to the 596 party, and they got the black book. They Millionaires overnight. One store. Because uh, as I was trying to explain to the people before, before we get sidetracked like we do, Ruby Stein's black book would be uh, the, the list of all the people who owed him money. Now, now you're probably wondering, okay, well, what's the significance of having someone's black book if Ruby Stein's not around no more? Well, because this isn't, you know, this isn't Ford Motor Company. This is the fucking street. So you uh, you approach an individual looking like Jimmy Coonan and Mickey Featherstone and James McElroy and Bill Beatty and you say, hey, word on the street is you got 10K out with Ruby Stein. And they say, like, yeah, well, I mean, nobody's seen Ruby. It's like, yeah, you're right, nobody's seen Ruby. But, oh, look at this. I got his book. You owe me now. And I mean, the message would be clear enough in itself. Like, oh, whoever has Stein's book probably fucking killed Stein. I seriously doubt that you found it in the alley. You know, so that was their plan. However, it didn't go off without a hit because the the torso of Ruby Stein floats back to the top of the Hudson River because the lungs were unpunctured. Um, and I mean, it sort of like put it all on blast. And it actually really, I was always surprised that Fat Tony didn't send a hit squad almost instantly. But I mean, sort of like, just at, like as he probably was gonna, that's when Paul Castellano notices the potential for these Irish hoodlums in Hell's Kitchen and he calls a sit down with them. Which also goes to show that like, despite Genovese's Ivy League status, uh, apparently Paul Castellano pulled more weight than Tony Salerno, because I just can't see Salerno being like, no, that's cool. You killed one of my biggest money-making oh, yeah, th- ever, you know? And There's no question about it that if, um, you know, if they didn't have the black book and uh, 
their rackets, then they would have been taken out immediately. They were useful for, um, you know, the Gambino and the Genovese family, so that's why they kept them alive. Oh, I, I mean, absolutely. And and you got to think, it's no coincidence that they make use of the boys because Ruby Stans killed May 5th, 1977, 596 Club, right? The, the, there's a, a sit-down held to explain to the boys that uh, they uh, they are to be, you know, more careful and less brazen with their murders. Paul Kessler <laughs> came in and said, hey, look, these, these random fucking homicides got to stop because the whole, like, uh, we only kill our own mentality that La Cosa Nostra, the Italian-American mafia had, was not the fucking symbology that these Irish boys had. It was, hey, no witnesses, no crime. And, you know, fucking bump shoulders with me, you might get shot. Catch me on the wrong day, you might get stabbed. I just don't simply like your face, you might get shot again. You know, like they didn't, they were leaving bodies all over the place, you know, during home invasions, during drug deals. But it is ironic that, you know, May, uh, as I said before, May 5th, 1977, Ruby Stein's killed, and then May 13th, 1977, mm. bada bing, bada boom, Nikki Spillane exists. So, I mean, I guess maybe that would be why Fat Tony kept him around. He's like, all right, look, you boys fucked me pretty good in the ass out of this one, but I'm going to send it through the grapevine that there's here's how we can make up for it. Tony didn't call a meeting with them or nothing, but I'm sure in Castellano's sit-down with them, it was sort of uh, given the, the wink and the nod that uh, Nikki Spillane's got to go, because he was still refusing to you know, play ball as far as eventually. Uh, so uh, Roy DeMeo and uh, Jimmy Coonan, and uh, I would assume probably one of the twins. Uh, I mean, it just seems like Roy didn't really go anywhere without one of his boys. I just don't see him getting in a car with Coonan by himself because that's the one thing I can say about the Westies that always kind of gave me a nice smile is that they, they genuinely made Roy DeMeo uncomfortable. that. <laughs> Now, going into the meeting, um, Coonan and Featherstone, they thought there was a good chance they were getting clipped as soon as they, they stepped foot in that meeting. They didn't know that, you know, Paul was going to make a deal with them and all that. So they had their guys basically outside waiting. And uh, they told them, if we're not out in a period of time, come in, come in shooting. I even believe Coonan had his, uh, his niece watching the place. Yeah, he had his niece watching the place, and I believe Coonan had a... Oh, yeah, they brought a grenade, too. That's another thing, you know what I mean? The fucking nuts. <laughs> yeah, seriously, walking, because you're not even just talking about, like, you and your boy and then, like, you know, the mob bosses that sit across from you. You're talking about fucking, you know what I mean? Because, like, New York dining, they got those, like, those those circular tables, and it's tight, and it's going to, you're going to fucking, you're going to kill, like, 13, 14 people, or at least but- maim. 13, 14 people and kill yeah. everybody. But if I remember correctly, the guys that they had uh, stationed outside or they had their, them in there at the bar um, in case something happened to them, they ended up losing their nerve and uh, they took off. So they, they didn't even stick around to uh, help out. Do you know what I heard on that side, Rob? That, uh, or some I, I had read um, in, um, oh, what was it? I've got it written down. Stuff. The Irish Central. Um, and they were saying that uh, Coonan, had realized that shit we've gone over time where are the boys they ain't come in here yet so he went off to go yep. and tell them listen everything's cool don't worry about it and they were they were pissed they were all just like ah oh, we'd forgot anyway we we're just gonna have another drink just for like just to make sure and things like that uh i mean i don't obviously there's i would have thought there's gonna be thousands or hundreds of stories coming about about that part of it but 
it does seem strange that it doesn't seem strange. I mean that, yeah, right. You lot go and wait in that bar, but don't get drunk. And like Ian said, the Irish like a drink. They're getting ready. Their, their mates might be wiped out. So it kind of, I don't know, it carries a bit of truth, I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Irish Irish don't just, like, love a drink. I, I'm pretty sure we just require it. I don't, I, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm no doctor or scientist. But, yeah, I, I, uh, I, I'm pretty sure Irish people are just required to drink once you get past a certain percent, especially once the sun goes down. Forget about it. <laughs> And especially once you think that it might not be the the mob. <laughs> in the back of those other guys' heads. But, you know, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, that's why I was saying the Italians mm. were always like sipping too, but they were sipping. Like, that's where the Irish, they don't be sipping. What? I mean, sipping what? What are you talking about? So I sip a water when I wake up just to, just to get my mind right before I crack the Jameson. Like, yeah. That's well, I think the, the mentioning the word irony, um, I don't, I, it really can be used in respect of Mickey Featherstone because, like you say, he didn't mind pumping 44 bullets into the geezer. He didn't want to cut him up. But then years later, he didn't mind singing like a canary when he turned informer either. See, Featherstone is one of those ones I have, like, I don't have sympathy for because, you know, you're not supposed to write any friends, but I do have sympathy for because once that meeting goes down, Coonan, uh, from uh, Bill, what, Bill Beatty's testimony, uh, not testimony, I got quick testimony, Bill Beatty's little uh, tidbit on it in a documentary that I watched about him was uh, as soon as uh, as soon as Jimmy got the blessing, he, uh, he wanted to be Italian. He turned Italian, he was wearing pinky rings driving a Mercedes. You rarely seen him at the 596. You rarely seen him. At the, and when he was at the 596, he had this little pedestal he had on that like to where it was like the floor had been lifted up a little bit and it was strictly like almost like a throne for Coonan to sit on. And, you know, and the, the boys used to always joke like as the king sits on his throne. And I mean, a lot of the guys started sort of going out on their own and going out on a limb, but Featherstone wasn't really a hustler. He really depended on Jimmy to find him stores. And once Jimmy uh, was kind of given, you know, the run to Hell's Kitchen the way Mickey Spillane was, so long as he was willing to cut t- fat Tony Salerno and Jigs and, you know, the Gambinos and, uh, on the convention center and, and, and pay, you know, like any other mop crew would. And then he became very, uh, I wouldn't say very close with Roy DeMeo, but he became a, a pretty reputed uh, re- shooter for Roy. I mean, we hear about the twins when we talk about Roy's crew. We hear about, you know, Dominic Montaglio. We we hear about all those guys, but what we, what we don't hear is the fucking, you know, 40 murders that Roy sent the Westies on, you know, because it was a, a touchy subject where it's like, we're not killing one of our own. And maybe it's a civilian that's got to go. Maybe it's a teamster boss. Maybe it's a, and so Featherstone felt like he was getting shafted. And as the time went on, Coonan uh, and Featherstone get tied up in a murder rap uh, in uh, the 1980s over a murdered uh, bartender by the name of Harold Whitehead who they most definitely killed, but, uh, you know, uh, they end up getting acquitted. That's all good and fine. That seems to be, like, the story of Coonan's life. Now, you, I mean, you fast forward a little bit to 1985, 1986, and I forget if it was uh, Ryan Bentley or James or I forget which one has the, uh, the, the birthmark, the, the purple face on the left side of their face. Uh, it's, a, it's a pretty rugged-looking picture, but that individual was sent to kill um, – a, a union boss, a, a union official. Uh, I don't know if it was at the convention center or at another job job site, but I, I want to say it was at the convention center because mm. I mean everything's centering around the convention center at this period in time. It was so much, not, not everything, but for the Westies, everything, you know, was probably, and that was the biggest score of their fucking life besides the 
the Ruby Steinbook, which I do believe they ended up having to give back anyway. So I don't think they ever really spent wealth from that. Uh, I think they were just kind of given the reins in Hell's Kitchen. I'd have to do I, I would really have to double check on that, but I just can't see Serlano uh, letting a couple of Lorraine Irish hood mm-hmm. keep that fucking keep that book. Yeah, that, yeah, you know what I mean. So in 1986, what's up? No, God, I was agreeing. What's up? <laughs> I think Rob was going to say something. Oh no, I wasn't saying nothing. Oh, Rob, you got something? Sorry, Rob. Yeah, my bad, guys. So the West. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm loving it, mate. I'm, I, it's like it's nice to sit back and listen for a change. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you guys got that appellation in Genovese. Well, I'll tell you what, though, you, um, um, talking of Genovese, and obviously Fat Tony again. We we've covered quite a few areas. Quite yes, we've been in New York quite a lot, but we've covered quite a few areas over quite a few decades. And every time we've mentioned Fat Tony, every single time. And I think that goes to show how much, how how powerful he actually was, because he just seems involved with absolutely everything that was going on in New York. He had his hands in everything, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. No. I, I really didn't even think about that until just now, David. Like, like the last probably ten episodes, I'd say, like, yeah, Fat Tony's from that from that period of of, of the sort of well, yeah, yeah that period of, of the life. Um, especially when Genovese, that everything does yeah. always seem to come back to Fat Tony. It, it's you, you, you'll read a story or you'll find a bit of research about a completely different scenario, a completely different family. All of a sudden, Tony Salerno's name will pop up. <laughs> yeah, My, the Michael Francis guest. Oh, God, don't that story bores me. <laughs> I've heard it so many. Do you know what? I think I've heard it so many times. I could actually Michael Francis. do it. <laughs> no, the game's tag scam. Oh yeah. yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. It was brilliant, but I also think uh, Old White pumped up uh, the amount of money he was making a little, a little bit. I mean, he was living. I'm not saying he wasn't living high on that fucking horse, but he's all like, "Ah, it's clearing like six million a week profit." It's like, no, you're clearing six million a week. Two mil went to Fat Tony. Two mil, you were probably yeah, no, it's a good scan. Not knocking Francis in any way like that, but yeah, I'm sure there's other stories to tell. <laughs> in reality, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I'm sure, if you ask uh, Fat Tony how it went down, instead of him being like, "Oh, Michael, could you please get my guy back to Fat Tony?" He'd be like, "Yeah, I sat that fucking cocky little sunny son down, and I told him, I told him what was what, mm. and that he was going to give a few gas stations." You know, out of everyone, knows how it really went I down. think out of everyone, past, present, and future, I the the if I if I got the opportunity of interviewing one person, it would be Fat Tony that I'd want to sit down with and interview. Definitely, bold choice. I'm I'm, I'm going oh, yeah. I'm going with Carmine. I'm sorry. I, I I admire both you boys. I Fat Tony is a good one, but yeah, I mean, he was a. St- Are you kidding me, bro? He, I who Persico? You said you'd go with recently. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, Carmine, bro. Carmine, Carmine, easily, man, because he just—I don't know, man. There was something about. I feel like Carmine brushed shoulders with every major, like all all the people you talk about that didn't make. You know what I mean? Like he's oh, yeah. running with the gallows, he's hopping out of the gallows, he's you know he's fucking sick way towards Perfati, he's running away from. Oh man, I'm thinking of other people now. Carlos Michello, I wouldn't mind as, actually speaking to Carlos Michello either. Yeah. Yeah. Is that the New Orleans boss? 
Yeah, see, I'd like I, I admire his gangster and I love the thirty thousand dollar pocket, but there's something about like you being a New Orleans <laughs> mob boss that I'm just like, man, you can keep it. Same with Tropicana. Sano Tropicana, I like Sano Tropicana. He was a smart mover. I admire all of them. I just, it's just, I don't know. I can't. There's something about this. I got a lot of family down south, and I don't know. The south is just probably, I just call it not my favorite. Well, that's fair enough. You don't have to like everywhere. They got some great cities. I love my, but like the, when I think New Orleans, when I think gangs in New Orleans, I, I, I think of, you know, the, the street gangs, really, if I'm being honest, you know what I mean? Because they, they mm. overrun, you know, cities like New Orleans and St. Louis and, uh, you know, different spots in Florida, even though the mob still like had control on those guys, like New Orleans is just never like, I don't know. He was super calm spoken, kind of like, you know, not, uh, he wasn't. No, nah, he was. No, 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 he wasn't. Yeah, I, I feel like when I've heard the, for sure. But he, I mean, uh, wasn't the New Orleans mob like the first official like? That's yeah. That's you, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they, they were one. That's that's kind of why. Um, obviously, you go back to you're talking about David Hennessy times when. Um, David Hennessy was uh, murdered and they wiped out. All of the um, uh, Matranga, Matranga family was it, or was yep. it the other family that were wiped out? It was Matrangas. Um, Charles was it? Charles Matranga? Cool, bloody hell! I'm <laughs> racking the brain on this one. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, you go back there, and you're talking about the early days, of, or not the early days so much, but the, the the days of the Black Hand as well, when the Black Hand was very much um, uh, about as well. That's true. Yeah, I mean, you are. I mean, you are. Like I said, I'm never knocking. I'm never knocking their. Uh, I'm never knocking their gangster. But well, when I think of like, uh, I, I see, I have because I have the same niche about LA. Like I know there's a lot of a lot of fucking big names that came out of the you know the LA mafia and they. Yeah, drag now. They're not to be taken as a joke. They're not to be taken lightly. Yeah, yeah. But I also, I sort of view it like you know when I think of the mob, I think of sort of like the the East Coast Midwest get up you know what i mean i think uh mm. kansas city and that's a stretch for me even you know cleveland i'll even give it to fuck ohio because i've been out of columbus ohio for three weeks now i'm sick of it uh but chicago and then you know new york obviously jersey philly and then i even move up watch you well, you can't not like that like and if i were to like do it six family you know yeah yeah that's what i mean there's you know but if i were to make a comparison if like in like a weird sense it'd be like i take like the east coast and like midwest and the canadian sector of like organized crime with Costa Nostra and all that and I'd I'd let's say they'd be the, the hell's angels and then like all the other like scattered places would be like the outlaws like don't get me wrong both are fucking immense criminal organizations to me both are fucking you know should be definitely feared and give them the respect they want but who don't want to be a hell's angel you really like you somebody really gonna bypass being a hell's angel go these, these- I mean you know what I mean like it's not it's Different to the Outlaws and the Hells Angels. Excuse me. What's up? I was saying about the one percenters. Are they no, you're, you're the, the motorbike gangs aren't that? really my thing? So obviously, I've, I know the Hells Angels and the Outlaws. So excuse my ignorance. Who are the one percenters? No. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. the one, the one percenters, the one percenters are just all outlaw uh, biker gangs, really. Uh, 
there's a handful of a lot of them rock a patch that say one percent because there's a, a poll taken back in the '60s when the Hells Angels were really r- ramping and like coming up in the in the country, and it was right. that uh, 99% of motorcycle riding enthusiasts are law-abiding citizens. Only one are you know the the degenerate criminals that are being portrayed, and so the Hells Angels sort of liked that title and sort of like uh, took it with a. Uh, oh wow! Well, I didn't know where that come from. Maybe so thank you. <laughs> on their vest mm-hmm. fun fact about that my home my home yeah fun fact about that my hometown fucking uh one percenters the 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 boys that really hold down michigan more or less is we ain't a hell's angel or an outlaw state we got them but we're a devil's disciple state that's that's the primary uh outlaw gang outlaw biker gang in, in, in michigan and uh actually they have the tight riding formation uh i mean known to biker gangs it's six inches from the back tire of one brother to the front tire of another. And they're one of the only ones who don't mm. uh, sport a one percenter patch because, you know, a lion don't got to tell you it's a lion, I suppose. But uh, nonetheless, I was just using that as a comparison to like when I think, you know, that is, that's why there's been so many uh, people try to do, you know, the next good fellas, the next godfather, the next, you know, that's why it, it's hard to be like, let's uh, do a mob movie based in Detroit where we say milk. And clan and Fago. Like, no, you want to <laughs> like, even right. Tell me, I lost my, like, yeah, no, I lost I my lost, khakis. Lost khakis right now. Hey, you See, that's what I'm saying. Like, that's like, that's what people want. Like, fucking, and then, like, I mean, I'm just picturing <laughs> Florida gangsters just being real, like, well, it's a hot one and just moving real slow all the time. And there's not, like, they're clearing the money. That's really wrong, but like, I've done been to this funny boys. Let me tell you something. <laughs> Some motherfuckers they move slow and steady down. It's hot and it's fucking humid as shit. You know? And then when I think I think LA, I just think of, you know, like you guys are gangsters who are obsessed with being movie stars. That's why, like, you know, that's why you're out here. Obviously that's not the case with some of them. You know, I'm I'm sort of making a generalized statement. But I mean that's just a personal opinion too. I mean, because it's all organized crime. But for I mean for me, you know. The East Coast and the Midwest, they uh I mean they just got the stories, man. They just got, I mean they're 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 why Hoffa's not around. They're why, you know, Armand Galante got laid out, you know, at at Tomasio's or what or Joe and Mary's wherever it was. They're the reason, you know, Paul Castellano is forever gonna be, you know, epitomized, rubbed out in fresh concrete in the Lincoln continent, you know what I mean? Like I can't think of very many like notorious yeah. or uh like just constantly report on to where you just see documents. Well, traffic can, I mean, traffic can is always like, being pulled in with the JFK the stuff, isn't it? Like, so, I mean, it's, um, it, he's kind of linked in with the JFK killing. So, uh, and, and obviously through Sam Giancana as well and his relationship with Sham, Sam Giancana, because Sam Giancana spent a lot of time down there as well, didn't he? Yep. Yeah, yeah, I believe that's also where Joe Badder sort of like resided when he was uh, the uh, you know when he was the boss, but Giancana was the boss. That I also just admit, boys, I'm not I'm not a huge fan of Florida. I'm just not. Every time something fucking crazy happens in America <laughs> and new laws and regulations are passed, a dumbass home in Florida is just wiling out. I mean, we we shouldn't have Nile Crocs over here in America. Guess what? They started importing them to Florida. We're going to thrive in Florida. Nile Crocs. Stop, Florida. Stop with the fucking animals. I do not need all in my backyard. But please and thank you. <laughs> but no, I mean, I, I 
mean, just when I think about, also when I think about New York, I guess I also take into consideration <laughs> that everywhere else we just talked about, whether it's Detroit, Cleveland, Florida, whatever, you got what, one, maybe two families packing up the entire state. Mm-hmm. You go to New York City, not even New York State, we're not talking the whole state, we're literally talking the five boroughs, <laughs> and you got five, five, fam- six my families, as David said, because Montreal had its fucking greedy little hands in the you know, New York. All just running a month, like a million different mm. crooked wise guys chasing the same nickel. And I mean, it, it just made for a lot of action. And I mean, it's a city that never sleeps. But that's just personal opinion. Like I said, fucking that's the reason <laughs> I, uh, you uh-huh. are well renowned historians. And I started the podcast right there because I know my shit, but I'm biased as fuck. And I, I mean, just, I don't know. I also like to, uh, put my own little twist on some of this shit because none of us really know what happened. Like, it, it's cool to give the facts. Even, even know, the stuff we do know, we don't really know because at the end of the day, nine times, 99 of it, 99% of it, 99% of it comes from informers. Informers that are trying to get themselves the best deal. I mean, at the end of the day, they're going to inform, so they might as well just make up any old shit um, to, to try and get them... Uh, a lesser sentence as they can. So again, it's right. like, who do we believe? <laughs> yeah, I mean, who would you guys, if you had to pick one, and then well, I mean, then we'll wrap up the Westies. But that, that just made me think of a good hypothetical, Dave. If you had to pick one, who do you think, as a as an informant, as a rat, as a think school pigeon, whatever? Before we have to read a million fucking comments about like, oh, you guys. Some donut rats like that dude. I mean, what do you even do? You're a brick. Why? What do you? What? Do you but nonetheless, who do you guys think was the uh, most? Um, I'm going Greg Scarpin. Way to put it. Who do you think was the most? Oh, yeah, yeah, because because obviously the way that he also used the yeah, the FBI for his own purposes. Um, I think for me, um, that was. <laughs> Do you still class him as a rat? I mean, it's quite a difficult one with Greg Scarper, but I just think that the way he he kind of turned it back on the FBI. Um, if we're going to say uh, Greg Scarpa's not the a who? rat, then I, I'm going to go on yeah, and I, say that then Boulder's not a rat then either, though. You know what I mean? All right. Yeah. You, you kind of... Yeah, well, Boulder. There's different kind of rats, you know what I mean? Like Scopper and Bulger, they they didn't get, you know, necessarily get arrested and decide to flip all Scopper. That's how he did uh, in the '60s. Mm. But um, you know, they 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 started doing it before. Um, you know, they caught a big case on like uh, where Sammy Gravano he decided to flip right after, you know, his arrest. I think. That's kind of what I, I think, you know, a, a hell of a lot of information came from Sammy Gravano and a hell of a lot of information came from Joe Valachi. Valachi really... Uh, Do you think so, Rob? You know, Do you he think really he gave a lot much? of vote. I, you know what? I, I, can't, I can't say for sure, but... Oh, here goes Dave. Oh, you know, Dave unless he's freaking making it all up, he did have so much No, I don't mean making it up. Because, I mean, the FBI had quite a lot of information on a lot of people that was on them charts anyway before Valachi said anything. So was he there? Yeah. Was he? Uh, yeah, he knew stuff. I, I, I don't deny that he knew stuff. Of course he knew stuff. 
he he was part and parcel. He was Maranzano's driver for Christ's sake. He must have known some stuff. But to know as much as he did, I think a lot of that would have come from the FBI and fed into him, I think. Possibly, yeah. Because, I mean, I'm sure they did give him some info to, uh, you know, to to put out there. I mean, the FBI there. I mean, Bruschetta, he done a lot of damage to the American Mafia, didn't he? Yeah, he did, he did. I mean... (laughs) Was was it was he a rat against? For me, I, in in Sicily, I think Bisquetta was more um, signing off the Sicilian mafia, the the death knell of the Sicilian mafia. Because when Marina took over, not only did he take over in such a uh, drastic way, but he was more a terrorist than he was mafia. I've I've I, I said that for years, and I stick by it. Um, so for me, yeah. Bisquetta in Sicily wasn't so much of a rat, but he was in America. I mean, he really did cause the, Ameri- the, the American-Italian mafia uh, a lot of problems when he turned Pentito over here. Uh, uh, sorry, over here in America, I think. Yeah, but... No, go ahead. I'm good. So you think that, like... So you think... Sorry, Rob, go ahead. I, I, uh, like, I was just going to say, like, I, I guess... Uh... I mean, I love how down the rabbit hole you guys just went, but like, I was more or less saying like, kind of like, yeah, like, like Rob hit the nail on the head and then like, I love the rant you just did, David, but I'm not sure if like, that's what I mean. Cause like when I'm like, what I'm thinking about is somebody who like, send me the bulls like, got to be the worst, like, surely. Get caught up and, like, you know, you <laughs> yeah. Live that life he, yeah he, and, and you flip like a Sammy Gravano or like a secret. <laughs> my question was the most truthful because like we were just, we were saying beforehand, how we think all these fuckers sort of build up the, you know, their to do and like how big they really were and this and that, and this and that, and this and that, you know. So I wonder who, like, when you take a story, mm-hmm. like, who's yeah, no. the closest. I mean, to Sammy, like, damn sure Sammy no was real close to, um, that one you know, out. to the truth on a lot of things so, and a lot of info he gave was, uh, was backed up, you know, either by him or, or by others. I mean, he testified and did, you know, way more talking than he actually Other, yeah. had to. It was almost yeah. like he started to enjoy it. Then he started going before committees and all that. Who was the yeah, one? Yeah. Oh, my God, my brain's gone completely. Who was the one that wrote the book in Italian? The first one who wrote the book. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm going. Oh, back in the day. You're talking about a, uh, was, it has it was he a rat? Yeah, it's not yet been translated what, what, into into English, and it's only available in Italian. Why is my brain not working? Because <laughs> <laughs> it's Sunday and we all smoke weed. But, but nonetheless, uh, yeah, I mean, I I'm either giving it up to Sammy or I'm a real big truthful wise. Yeah, I'm a real big backer of Frank Collada being. What he told us is about what happened. Yeah, that's what that's what I mean. Because I'm kicking Phil Leonetti right out, <laughs> right the fuck out. Oh, like, come I on. have I, Phil Leonetti is gonna want to fight me by the time he hears all these because I have bad mouth him several podcasts. But I just can't, I just can't do the whole like, oh, you know, it was my uncle, it was my uncle. This is a, like, no, take a little fucking responsibility, dude. Like, they, I mean, like, yes, Nikki Starfo was a fucking piece of shit and probably did, you know, sort of maybe twist your arm to get you started in the life when you were a young kid and a young boy. But by, by the time you were 22 and you fucking killed eight people already and shot two of your best friends, you're like, don't go 
don't go giving me the fucking the whole run around. Oh, my uncle, my uncle, you know, same with Henry Hill. Oh, I lived in fear every fucking day. Like, shut the fuck up. No, you did like no, you didn't. Like maybe you did, like here and there, but you were having a good ass fucking time while you were doing it. You're spending money, you're drinking, you're fucking women, you you know, buying cars, doing drugs, you know, like mm. so I just can't cause like Kalada, like every time I listen to Kalada talk, it seems like what you see is what you get. He's always like, I never wanted to be an alpha guy. Tony wanted to be an alpha guy. You know, he says, when I'm the right hand man, when I'm the when I'm the top boy, I'm gonna take you with me. And then he did, and he just and he just like spells it all out. Like when he talks about like the murder where like he used lower caliber yeah. ammunition in a 22 and had to fire like fucking two clips into a guy through a pillow. Like you, you know, like it don't get no more. Like hey, this is who I am. This is what I did. For truth, yeah, yeah. I, I must admit, I do. Um, I do enjoy watching uh, Frank a lot of stuff on YouTube still, and obviously on Instagram as well. Through um, Andrew Flower, I think his name is the guy working for him, or works does his stuff for him now. Oh, absolutely. He was a he was an amazing. He was a really good storyteller mm. in the sense that, like, despite not – he didn't try to oversell you like Henry Hill did, but he didn't he didn't make you feel like, you know, goddamn the way, like, Sammy did. Because, like, when, when Sammy's confessing, I got to admit, I love it. It's one of the best I, – I legitimately – I don't give a fuck who stops listening or who, like – you know, doesn't want to fuck with me anymore. I've been in like little bits of contact with Sammy Gravano as soon as I figured out he had a Facebook right on that shit. You know, Gambino family, that's my shit. I will genuinely, <laughs> Sammy, if you listen to me, I will genuinely cut you a check to come do an hour on this fucking podcast. Like, for real, honest to God, it's not going to be very much, Sammy. You're getting old and your story's worn thin, but none, I check nonetheless. I can, my word is my box. But, yeah, man, like when like when you hear his story, it's so and it's from so close to the top. I guess that's what uh, gets me about Colados is that it, it's uh, cause a lot of mid-level guys. Come, you know, what I mean, Sammy, it was so it was so fucking crazy because he was an underdog. And then like, oh, who's going to follow through with that? Oh, apparently another big surprise. But I'm not sure. Colada was just your average. I'm not sure. um, I yeah, I think he was, wasn't he? Um yeah, Pilatro was. was. Uh, his brother Michael wasn't. And I know. Yeah, yeah, Pilatro wasn't. But his brother Michael wasn't. That's how they lured them to their deaths, was, uh, you know, the whole Michael's going to be made. I'm trying to think. I, I, it, I, you know, for some know. reason, it's got in my mind he was made, but not in a, in a ceremony way. I don't think they. I don't think they do ceremonies in Chicago. No, nah, they, they, that's what I mean. They just, sure, just like yeah, you made. <laughs> yeah. Here you go. Go make us more money. Yeah, I mean, that, that would actually make sense now that, now that I think about it. Yeah, you're right, David, because Colada and Salato uh, started under uh, Mad Sam Dostofano. Uh, I mean, it was fucking psychotic that they wouldn't make him. But I think uh, one him and then the Eminem murder and then like because Kalata did put in quite a bit of work alongside Tony as they were coming up when they were both young bucks in the organization. I think Salatro just was more vicious and, and wanted it more, and Kalata was yeah they de- happy to sit back. They definitely that. learned from a crazy motherfucker because to stop you know what I mean. Uh, Di Stefano, <laughs> he he really <laughs> was a he was a nut. There's that story where um you know the cops would always come to his house and bust his balls and. 
he'd invite them in for coffee and all that. And one day, um, he, you know, he had his wife get them coffee and, um, you know, they, she serves the coffee to the cups and, uh, the taste of one of the coffee, one of theirs or both of them, it, it tasted real funny. Um, and it ended up where he pissed in the fucking coffee of the, the cups. <laughs> uh, yeah, sounds like him. There's a story of him yep. that Kalata says where it's like 2 p.m. at a bar and a girl walks into a bathroom and he goes in and he rapes her. And he comes out. Nobody says the fuck. Like, there's no love there's yeah, well, lost for me with Matt Sanders. If they could bring him back and kill him. Yeah, whatever, that's what I was just going to say. Yep. That piece of shit. Like, he kidnapped the black that he kidnapped the black guy and uh you know forced him to have sex with his wife as oh, punishment so- uh for his wife and, and this is so it was so fucking bizarre that the cops didn't even believe the guy when he told them and the guy's like listen go check his car my lunchbox is in there you know what i mean <laughs> yeah i was forced <laughs> you're like look i just raped a woman and i did not want to do it gentlemen yeah, like, hey, like, fucking nut job with this guy. He's just got these bulging bug black eyes and he was like spent when he talked. That's the other thing is they said when he would torture people, he would start to almost get like a like a foam, like when a dog's got rabies uh, from uh, uh, what Colada said one time when he was having a torture with Spilatro and uh, DiStefano. But nonetheless, let's loop back into the West. Going well. Goddamn, getting down the rabbit hole. Love it though, boys. Fucking good ass episode. Fucking hour and 10 minutes in. But nonetheless, the rest, the the Westies uh, come to the end of their. I mean, they don't really come to the end of their run. I think the last one was convicted in like uh, '92 or something. So they, they kept a little stretch going after that. It was uh, Brian Bentley, uh, Ryan Bentley, that was our last convicted. But in 1986, after Featherstone's convicted on a murder that another Westie committed in a disguise uh, on a union official at the uh, convention center, he uh, he can't seem that the prosecute. It's like an ironclad case. Old boy that did the hit isn't just going to come turn himself in. So the feds enlist the help of his uh, of Featherstone's girlfriend, uh, Sissy, I believe her name was, and she wears a wire. Which actually, I'll give it to I'll give it to that girl, man. Sissy was a, just as much a gangster as Featherstone from everything that I've researched. Like they like they struggled together, they grinded together. Like they both had real fucked up lives coming up, and she was as, as down for him as he was for her. He. He might have been the guy who would blow somebody's head off for her with a shotgun, but she was more than willing to go to a Westie's hangout wearing a wire in her bra and try to get them to openly talk mm. about the murder. What did that fucking drunk Irish fucking cokehead gladly talk about the murder because she got it all. She got him admitting like, yeah, no, I use this guys. I use the silencer, yada, yada, yada. And uh, eventually they used those, those tapes in court. And then, like I said, along with that, uh, Featherstone had, from what the prosecutors and like different uh, FBI agents said was uh, a terrific my photographic memory, if you will. You know what I mean? Because a lot of people can be like, oh, you know, th- like this is how it happened and this is, but like Featherstone would be like, no, it, you know, it was dark, it was raining, uh, Coonan was wearing a brown leather jacket with a, you know, with a striped collared shirt and blah, like he, he had that type of, that type of memory. And also the beauty of Featherstone is he was so unhinged that I, I love nothing more than if a motherfucker is going to turn snitch, that he can stare down the motherfuckers that he's about to put away for the rest of eternity and just like, hell, fuck you. You see like the Henry Hill, I can see him like peeking away, looking down, looking away, looking. I mean, Gravano, you know, could do it. Dude, Gravano sat there and fucking just yeah, tell you like it is. You know what I mean? Like, and uh, yeah, I always respected that because it's fucking, it, it, it is funny to see somebody not shook 
But nonetheless, uh, in 1986, um, Jimmy Coonan, uh, as well as uh, several other members, like I said, um, let me find, let me find their names and find the lockdown, the lockupies. You know, you'd have uh, James McElroy, uh, Richard Muggsy Ritter, um, you know, the, the ones that weren't dead, you know, Brian Bentley, all of them. They, uh, they would end up all getting the, the minimum of uh, 60 years each. Coonan would be given 60 years. He's still alive. Uh, he's still alive. He's 73 years old to this day. And uh, the only two that uh, sort of escaped the clenches, as well as Featherstone, was uh, Bill Beatty. Billy, Billy Beatty uh, turned state's witness, too. And uh, uh, one last cool little story before it all goes down. When Coonan told uh, Featherstone to murder Beatty, because Beatty actually uh, began cooperating first before Featherstone, but it, it was, I mean, it swiftly followed, you know. It, when we when mm -hmm. we tell these stories, everybody's got to remember yeah. that, like, even though it seems like it's a lot of, a lot of this shit happens really quick. You're talking within a couple of years, a couple of months, maybe a couple of weeks. You know what I mean? Like, look at the Ruby Stein hit and then Mickey, Mickey Spillane killed, you know, not even 20 days later. So when Featherstone was given the order to go kill Beatty because Coonan suspected that he was, you know, on the take, he was going to flip, uh, Featherstone pretty much approached Beatty and let him know what, what Jimmy had wanted him to do, but also let him know that it was never going to come from his hand. Because Jimmy sort of lost control over his choice. Like I said, you, you, can't, you can't come up with a bunch of guys who murder and rob and kill for you and you guys grind from nothing to something. You know, you all kill the biggest bookmaker in New York City history besides Arnold Rothstein, chop them up together, and then, like, you know, you get a little more recognition from a boss of a family and you want to you wanna play top dog and act like we're all beneath you, man. Fuck that. Like, I get why Featherstone did it. I get why BD did it. I ain't condoning it. You know what I mean? I, I don't like rats. I don't like snitches. I mean, my, my name with an S on it stands for I ain't no snitch. You know what I mean? Like, but... I do also understand that, you know, it's fucking, you're sitting in the clink for a murder that you actually didn't commit this time. You killed yeah, yeah, he gets, people. We're not, he gets we're not convicted for the one, one fucking crime he didn't do. And they're like, no, I actually didn't. That is irony. I actually, you know. yeah, the one murder he didn't hmm. actually commit. Yeah, that's the real irony. I mean, it'd, it'd be poetic justice in a sense of the word, but. I mean, it'd also be incredibly uh, stupid of Featherstone to have, you know, died on a hill for Jimmy Coonan, who would not have died on a hill for for him. Like Coonan got to experience the the sort of the allure and and the glitz and glamour of the mob life. Feather, Featherstone never did. I don't think Featherstone ever moved out of a one two bedroom, you know, tenant and in the heart of Hell's Kitchen with him and his girlfriend Sissy. He was always uh, he was always broke. He was, I mean, he had, he had a drinking and drug problem. I mean, you know, no mm. doubt, but nonetheless, it, you know, Coonan never really taught him how to scheme the way Ruby Stein had taught Coonan how to scheme. You know what I mean? He, he was always like, you're a lackey. Like, here, you know, go get this, go get that. You know, go kill this guy, go kill that guy. And then paying him less and less and less per hit. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, like, no, you should just do this for the crew, for the boys. For the, it's like, well, where's my fucking money, man? Like, you know, like, you driving around in a Mercedes. You're buying houses and clubs and you got a wife and a girl. We're like, where's my fucking money, Jimmy? You know? Gold. But uh yeah, so I mean they've like I said, nineteen sixty-eight to nineteen eighty-six. Very kind of kind of ironic. Very kind of ironic on the twist. And uh like I said, they they estimated anywhere between sixty to hundred bodies. Like I said, I'll ride right in the middle and say eighty, and you know, they might uh they might have not uh, ever achieved the immense wealth or the sort of the, the power that uh, like a fat Tony Salerno who got another 20 minutes in this episode or, or, you know, Car 
Carlos, uh, Marcella, or you know, all all, the, all those big time guys we talked about, they they never came close to achieving that sort of wealth and power. But the thing they did achieve was mm. they struck hundred percent definitely discomfort into the heart of all the people we talked about on today's episode. That's all I got, guys. Is uh, is there any last shout outs you want to give? Any any anything? Fucking. Feel like I had I've enjoyed to it. For just rambling your ears, but like I said, fucking. The no, I've enjoyed it. It's nice. It's, it was, it was one of those that I don't. Well, um, Jimmy Calandra, like part of Westies. I appreciate it, man. I appreciate it. We'll to... That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, Jimmy Calandra is part of the Bath a- the Bath Avenue crew. Reach out to him on Facebook. I would love bro. to get him on as well. Lonnie, yeah, any mob guys, guys any mob guys that that listen, any of you guys want to come on, uh, just reach out to us. Yeah, yeah, no. I'm, and yeah, and if it's you, Michael Francis, um, can we not have the no. um, gas scam though? <laughs> yeah, for real, for real. Like, well, yeah. Like, how about this? Let me change my comment. Anybody besides Michael Francis who wants to come on? Because. <laughs> uh, if he's on, I'll be calling in sick that day. <laughs> Getting uh, gas. Well, if Phil Leonetti ends up on here. Yeah, we've got a reputation. We don't want Leonetti. You know what I mean? So, yeah. There's a, there's a couple that I'd rather not be in here. But, but as far as like, Sammy, I'm telling you. <laughs> <laughs> Sammy, hit me up, brother. I'm going to tag you in this, too. Uh, you're going to get tagged. But, yeah, I mean, Calandra uh, as well. Uh, most definitely. If it, if, I mean, I'm, I know you guys fucking got shit you got to promote. I know, I know you guys need money, man. You guys got used to living the high life, and now you're just not here like the rest of us. Come on come on the hideaway and fucking do that shit. Promote your stuff. Fucking, like I said, Sammy the Bull, I'll, I'll flat out pay you myself. <laughs> you know? <Fair> <laughs> I'll pay you out of pocket for that interview. But, but. I want a solid hour and a half interview, <laughs> solid hour and, a half and you know, maybe, maybe a story or two that we, uh, we haven't got to hear yet, but, uh, nonetheless, guys, it, it's been a fucking blast. Um, uh, any last shots? Guys? Everyone, Christian, Craig, everyone, all those guys, you know, Dr. Um, J. Michael, Nyan, yeah. all of them, Alan. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Brent Giuliano, uh, you know, any, uh, yeah. Yep. John O'Connell, you wild Somerville motherfucker. Yeah, Jonathan's good people. He lives about 15 I, I minutes from me. you yet either. We got to do the boys talk Boston part two, Rob. No, he, yeah, he's cool. I, uh, we, we, we chat quite a bit. I, I fuck with him. I, I, yeah, 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 all right. <laughs> all right, gents. Well, uh, I'm going to get this all edited up and chopped up. Edited up. I'm yeah. fucking just going to. Thanks. Thanks. You know, thanks to everyone who's listening, and uh, we'll catch you guys next so week. Yeah, definitely, hundred percent. Be lucky, Rob. Be lucky, yeah. Yeah.